Producer Doug here. I just want you to know this is the fifth time I'm trying to record this, so I'm just going to shoot from the hip. All of our DCC audio wants you to know about Pop Culture Classroom. Now, this is a great program. They take cough books uh, to elementary schools, jails, uh, to for like, you know, illiterate, barely literate children and, and, and prisoners and they they do they have many programs. I'm just making it sound terrible, so I'm sorry, um, but I want to get this through. Uh, <laughs> uh, it uh, is an education program uh, with more than 600 hours of educational programming. Basically, it envisions individuals transformed by the educational power of pop culture to create diverse, inclusive, and engaged communities. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little Paul Shear on this. Sorry. Look, it's a great program. And because of them, we're bringing you these great con exclusives from Denver Comic Con. So please, please check them out. I think they're great. I mean, don't... There are so many things between the spectrum of elementary schools and prisons. There's middle schools and high schools and colleges and halfway homes and a van, you know, down by the river um, that... They hope that homegrown pop culture experiences can change the communities that we live in. I want this to go global, viral, globally. So please, check out Pop Culture Classroom. Uh, I think that's, uh, where's the, uh, there it is. At www.popcultureclassroom.org. They're legit. And hey, Give them some money. You know why? Because you're not paying for this. Kick them a buck. Kick them a couple bucks. Where's my $2? Where it should go to Pop Culture Classroom. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show.
very silly and humorous. Better, better. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to recommend the Everything Box. Um, I'm Stephen Graham Jones. I write horror. Let's see, my, let's see, my most recent novel is Mongrels from last year. I just had a novella come out with Tor.com. Just did a comic book. And yeah, I just always write too many books. <laughs> uh, my name is Dan Wells. I write uh, fantasy and science fiction and horror. Uh, I, at least I thought that I wrote horror. My, my main series. Well, I'm not a serial killer was made into a movie, and they called, some, one of the reviewers said, it's not really horror, it's a coming-of-age comedy about a serial killer. <laughs> so, apparently that's what I write. So. Okay, does anyone have questions to start out with, or should we jump into it? Craig, you're so lively. <laughs> Good job. Okay, what's scarier, monsters or murderers? Put us like head first into the food chain, you know? And so we spent millennia, 
being prey with we put millennia with teeth and teeth in the darkness and now we live in a world where we can shine light into every sterile corner and we're still programmed to want those teeth in the darkness and I think horror gives that to us it, it allows it, it allows it allows the door to crack open and a tentacle to slip through you know and, and that feels very comfortable comfortable to us because yes a tentacle might be coming through right here but there might be something glorious coming through another part of the door you know so if you crack the door open a little bit you get the terrible but you can get the wonderful too. Any article anywhere. <laughs> I've made many, many late night mistakes going down that rabbit hole. 
people and it's so disparaging. <laughs> so that just goes back to people are the scariest thing. Yeah, basically. <laughs> There's one more. Uh, I think the scariest thing I've ever thought of, and I thought of it in the middle of the night one night, I, I, it's just haunted me for years ever since, is that I will be away from home and there will be a house fire and my dogs won't be able to get out. Oh, and now I just worry about that all the time. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm no good for the rest of this bed. <laughs>
but that was more, that was probably less narrative voice and more of my like concern that someone might read this and think that that was okay and maybe someone else out there was condoning that behavior. So I, I, I don't know, I guess, I guess the line is subjective. I haven't really found a limit in the kind of horror. I have written some pretty dark and very funny stuff, but I've written some really dark horror too. I think it's a question of approach and intention. Um, I don't do my really hardcore horror to necessarily shock, but again, get into almost an otherworldly sense of possibilities of the world. You know, terror, terror happens on a lot of levels. So, I, you know, I've never tried to gross people out. I've never tried to do anything cheap. Um, and I think one thing, I don't know if other people feel about this, and I see a lot of it in pop culture and it bothers me, is the use of sexual violence in cheap ways. One of the reasons I stopped watching Game of Thrones, they were just having, just having a rapathon, having way too much fun doing it. And I know people are telling me that they got better at it and everything, but I can't let go of what they spent years doing. Um, I think that may be my limit right there to cheapen um, something really, to me, is horrifying. So. A few years ago, I was on a panel at the World Horror Convention uh, talking about humor and horror, and is there anything that you, you know, where's the line? Can you go too far? There's something you shouldn't joke about, and, and one of the panelists said, um, violence against children. So here's a joke. <laughs> There's a, a murderer taking his, his young victim off into the woods, poor little kid doesn't know what's going on. And it's raining, there's loud thunder, and the kid's like, this is kind of scary. And this killer says, you think it's scary now? I have to walk out of here alone. <laughs> and all of you just laughed at that. <laughs> and the reason I tell that joke is because if you do it right, you can kind of get away with anything. It's like what Richard said about, you know, you can cut off as many heads as you want as long as you make jokes about it. And that's a weird thing. It's a very weird thing that our culture does. But depending on how you approach it and how you present it, you can really kind of get away with almost anything. Yeah, the line moves a lot. The line moves depending on your audience, depending on the person, depending on the things going on outside of your control in society. The line is moving a lot right now, and it's kind of hard to track sometimes. But, uh, you just approach everything with empathy. As, as contradictory as it seems for, for a horror writer to approach an awful and terrible scene with, that, with some amount of empathy for somebody, you can find that line and maybe cross a little but then come back from it. I mean, that's kind of the necessary move there. You know, there's also, a, a few years ago, I did a horror novel, at least in my scars, and I decided to see how, how far I could get, if I could go over the line. And every time I sit down, I'll feel like physically ill. And by the end of writing that novel, I've lost 16 pounds. It made me sick to write that novel, you know? But I was glad to, I was glad to get out of a system that as soon as it's out of my system, more bad stuff just blew right up, you know? <laughs>
was just going to add on to Dan's comment. Do you think there's a connection there with what you're saying about the humor in that, like, ER docs and, and the staff, they have a very dark sense of humor just to deal with the stuff that they see every day? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, anyone didn't hear her comment. Um, that people who, who work in dangerous jobs, people who work in what I call the industry of death, um, you know, doctors, cops, morticians, I used to work in a cemetery, they have a very different outlook on that, a very different relationship with that, and a very dark sense of humor because I think it's a defense mechanism. It's a way of keeping their arms length. And I think uh, what a lot of us do when we bring supernatural elements into our stories, that's a defense mechanism as well, because that removes the story one step from reality. And it's a way of approaching something awful through this other lens. That's how, in my opinion, most of our monster stories and legends were created. You know, vampire, werewolf, that's just a guy who hunts and kills other guys. Um, and we, in order to deal with that as a culture, we've kind of, kind of inoculated ourselves by pretending that he's actually a supernatural monster. And so we've invented all of these, these legends to, to cover for us, and really it's just human to be haunted. And also humor, I mean humor and horror, I, I've been told that physiologically a laugh and a scream are, until the moment of eruption, they're the exact, they look the exact same in the body. Um, and it's really wonderful as a writer to play on that with your audience, to not let them know if they're <laughs> and, and also, humor is like a pressure release valve in horror. If, if everything is like worse, 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 then pretty soon it gets screechy by 30% of the novel, and you, the reader's going to stop listening. But if you can reset with a joke or something every few pages, then they can start climbing that tension ladder again. There's a, uh, one of Dean Coop's books called, I think it's called Tension. Oh, Am yeah. I thinking of the right one? Yeah, where it's, and I, you know, I haven't talked to him about this. I don't know if this is actually what he did, but I kind of see that as him doing an experiment in never releasing the tension. It never lets up. There's never a pressure valve at any point in that book. And it is his hardest book to read because of that. Good question. Um, in, the, in regards to like speaking of comedy and horror and the same thing and like where the line is, um, in comedy, it's punching up versus punching down. Do you think that there is an element of punching up when you write horror? Like, in regards to the joke about the, the kid and the killer, the killer's the butt of the joke, not the kid. So it's like, it's easier to handle. Do you think that plays an element as well when exploring horror? I think so. Um, sorry, I'm kind of not loving this. Uh, I'll say one thing and I'll let them talk. Uh, you look at kind of the recent, really successful horror comedies, stuff like Cabin in the Woods, or uh, Tucker and Dale, Tucker, Dale and Tucker versus Evil, and those covers, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, both of those are definitely punching up. The butt of all the jokes in Cabin in the Woods is corporate America. Uh, you know, the butt of all the jokes in Tucker and Dale. Yeah. Sorry. I love that movie, now I can't remember the order their names are in. Uh, it's not making fun of the backwoods rednecks, it's making fun of the backwoods college kids. That, are usually the ones in movies who get to make fun of the fact with Redneck. Um, and so I think that there's a very strong element of that. Punching up is just a good, it's just a good uh, policy in general. <laughs> you just, there are too many groups, there are too many people who we've, we've spent years 
and yet we feel it's okay. Um, and we're a group of people, we're a bunch of nerds, and yet when you make a furry, you're a bunch of down, you're a bunch of people like us who dress up, have an obsession, and makes them happy. So I think we have to be careful, especially in a community like this, of where, where the humor's going.
Yeah, that's kind of where I would, would start. And honestly, if you Google what are the most annoying tropes about the same people, you'll find lists and lists and lists of things to avoid. I would say just, I'm not sure how to do it, but how to do it wrong is if you read the story such that person A is schizophrenic, therefore they are a killer. You know, you don't want to reduce somebody like that. You want, you want them to be a killer because that's who they are, and schizophrenia is just one facet of their character, you know? There's a, a strong tendency in our media to either demonize or outright canonize mental illness. Uh, and so on the one hand, you have something like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, who basically was evil because he was transgender. Uh, or, you know, someone, and then on the other hand, you've got, and, and, I, and I, I misspoke there because I did not want to present transgender as a mental illness. That, that was my mistake, and I apologize. But, um, now on the other end of the scale, you've got something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that presents mental illness essentially as a lifestyle choice. And who are you to tell them that being schizophrenic is wrong? And that kind of attitude has really screwed up mental health in our nation. Um, you are today in America 10 times more likely to be in prison than in therapy if you have a mental and that's, I mean, that's a friend, so it should be offensive to us in the culture. And so I've written books about schizophrenia, I've written books about um, conduct disorder, about sociopathy, about um, multiple personalities, uh, and all of, these, all of these different things. And what you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do at least, is to present those things as real as you can. Don't sensationalize them. Like she said, I mean that, that's the first place you go is you talk to people who actually live with it and, and find out what it's like. What is it like day to day? Um, there's a lot of great resources you can find in technical manuals. This is exactly how schizophrenia functions, but an even more valuable resource is going to be like the therapy books. Your husband has schizophrenia. How do you deal with that? How do you live with him? And how do you go on with your life and make it work? And that's where you're going to find the real meat of being able to present that as a real thing, rather than just as some kind of monster. I guess I have a question over here. Did that happen? <laughs> that was my imagination? Awesome. <laughs> Do you ever get so deep in your stories that when you're done with them, you need to not write more for a little bit or reset somehow? And how do you do that? I do get scared while I'm writing. I think that's how I know that I'm into some good material, is that I have to set up obstacles in the hallway so that my wife can't come in the hall and terrify me on accident. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do. Like, sometimes I'll write something, and afterwards I just want to like, read my brain like a dishcloth and get all the bad stuff out. You know? But that generally takes like two or three hours. Go play basketball or go to a movie and then get back on that horse you know, for me. I almost feel like for me, putting it on the paper is what gets it out. It was kind of already there to begin with, so that's kind of the therapy of all of it, is getting it out of my head and onto a piece of paper and making it tangible um, so it's not this big, this thing kind of rolling around in my brain. Yeah, I occasionally find something exhausted mm -hmm. after writing something really horrific. In a good way, I mean, kind of what you were just talking yeah, about, yeah. like you got it out, didn't hold back, right. and you were true to yourself.
hear the story, and if you do it right, again, you're not cheapening the characters, if you're dealing with mental illness, you know, you're, you're honoring the source material, you're, you're trying to do it right. But yeah, um, I found myself occasionally um, just really wrung out by it. And, it one, and one time, really sad, um, it's like, oh, I guess it's been horrible for this poor slob. Um, I mean, he deserved it. But, you know, you kind of, uh, it's that human level of empathy that you can surprise yourself even when you're writing just miserable, nasty stuff. There's a, I do think there is some value in children switching uh, for people that just write horror, of course, it, it, there's enough difference there that it can, I mean, you're not writing the same thing over and over. I think there's probably a little bit of a, a release valve since you hardly ever start out right in the middle of somebody screaming and running, which there's you know, a setup phase that you can allow yourself to recover and attempt to be therapy before you start horribly torturing them. But uh, I do think there's value in switching genre. I've tried that a few times myself, and it seems like if I can stop and write something lighter, or even not necessarily lighter, but just a little bit less horrific, it can get even darker, except when I come back. And also, sometimes the dark stuff creeps into the light stuff and turns it into something I wasn't expecting. Yes. Um, so you talked a little bit, you talked about lines and things that you don't, where you don't want to cross. But when we're dealing with things like um, bullying or rape or um, subjects that we don't necessarily want to talk about as a society, and one of the things that I feel horror does is it actually allows us to look at it in a way where um, we actually can begin to empathize with the victim. So how do you, I mean, how do you handle writing a scene like that, that has to do with something like that, where you're really able to bring out both how horrific it is and bring empathy into it? Like when you're like writing, what are, are there mechanics to it? Like what would you let flow? How do you, how do you do it? <laughs>
being an unsympathetic bully victim. You, you really have to want them to be unsympathetic, in my opinion. I think the only technique I can think of is you have to make a choice when you're showing, hey, you can go back and bully him. Um, and from the victim's point of view, there's, you can write it two ways. One is writing it from the inside, and one is writing it from the outside. Uh, I often write it from the outside because if someone's being horribly bullied, kicked, punched, for me, the way I, I will write it is I don't think I need to explain to you the feeling of the person being bullied. You can, if, you know, you can understand that. And I, for me, writing it from the outside like that puts the reader um, in a position where they are participating in a way that's different than if I wrote it from inside the, the victim's head, where you're hearing their thoughts uh, as the bullying is taking place. I think that sometimes portraying things with that cold clinical eye can sometimes um, create more of a sense of horror, but also more of a sense of empathy for the person who is, uh, who is the victim. into detail versus imagination. Uh, if you put enough on the page, yeah, it kind of gets into a difference for me, detail versus imagination. If you provide all the details, then I don't have to think of it in my own head. If you, if you give me just enough that I make it horrific, or I make it horrible, or I empathize, empathize with that person, that that's more of a a concerted, you know, connection between me and the writer or the story. Yeah, that's that's one of the one of the first things I learned when I when I started writing was that uh, your brain has such a better special effects budget than any book that I can write. And so, I mean, that's really what you're trying to do is give you all the tools you need to terrify yourself. Yeah, what that does is it makes the, the reader a participant in the creation and maintenance of this story, and they thereby feel some ownership of it, and they invest more, I think. And then you can scare them better when they're invested. I don't think you have to stick to that. I've written a couple of stories. Um, a story in one of Ellen Dablo's anthologies called uh, An Ambitious Boys Like You, where I think sometimes you can really dig into what this moment is horror of a moment where you can just get right up close, a close-up of what's going on here. It was one of the nastier stories I've ever written. And I had a good time because I didn't usually write that kind of story. I wrote the, the we have the Jaws scenario where we don't see the shark, yeah, we don't see the shark, that is a shark. Um, sometimes it's really great to do the opposite. It's like, here's a monster, you know? Put the monster right out in front and make the monster part of the story, not the hidden part of the story. Just to sort of, uh, you see this in Clyde Barker's work sometimes. It's like the monster's right there. You're having breakfast and that's the monster's right there. Deal with it. And how you, how you react, how you interact with the monster can be really effective in a very different way. 
of the reasons that that style works is because you can't get away from it. You know, so you're, you're being scared from a different angle. You know, it's like you're strapped into a roller coaster and you're strapped in and you can't get out and I'm just gonna show you this monster and you either stop reading or you keep seeing the monster. And so you kind of, you're, you're stuck with it and you can't escape it. Yeah, and Mac? I'm curious on, uh, you know, some of the best horror that I've read, you kind of get a, you get a better picture of the, the villain um, and where he's coming from. How do you guys, if you do that, how do you get that, how do you try to squeeze that through on your pages or how do you write that? So how do you portray villains? Not just how you portray them, but how, how do you get to where
sympathize with him because you've suddenly seen this from his point of view. I have to hide this body from my mom who get caught. And that moment changes the entire thing. And for me, that, that moment is what makes that movie into art. If you're trying to create a good 
villain, you kind of have to go with where the story's going, I think, and keep the integrity of it. So I think sometimes you do end up with really strong motives, and those get right now, and everybody gets to know those. And then I think sometimes you end up with the ambiguous one. I would say it probably just has more to do with the integrity of the narrative track you've kind of taken where the story goes. And then it's kind of up to the reader to choose what they prefer. You're never going to write a book that all horror fans like, or even your own fans like. You might put something out before, like, oh, that last book, he wrote this crap, or, you know, whatever. It just kind of happens. I just think you need to stay as integrous to your storyline as you possibly can. Okay, we have time for one more question. Oh, yeah, Ann, what up first?
representation of disabled people in fiction usually centers on, um, you know, uh, madness. That's the that's the that's the cliche one. That's the one you see most often is um, the serial killer. It's just a madman. Uh, and then the other part is what I think is kind of the gimmick, the, the black belt um, in a wheelchair. It's it's a really interesting line that uh, I've been talking to friends about um, who have certain disabilities, like how to represent that as part of the spectrum of what the characters are in a piece of fiction. And I think I think it's a really something we're, we're having to sort of move toward step by step to not make it gimmicky or exploitive. And I'm still trying to figure out what those lines are. I'm talking to friends who have certain uh, disabilities about how that representation can work best. Okay, that's it guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> but thank you for coming. If you liked this, check out some of our other shows like Mr. Right, Exotic Liability, and No Applause, Just the Clap. You can find us at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for BACN on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, yeah.